Humidity a whopping 95%. Please be advised the strong monsoon signal is currently in force. News and weather, RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and Brian Wong is our guest presenter. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Jim. In the first part of today's programme, we'll be hearing more about the HKU President's Forum, Science and Society, that took place uh, yesterday at the University of Hong Kong. Globally renowned uh, thought leaders were here to share their views about the importance of science and technology and its influence on government policy for the good of society. The topics included the economic benefits uh, of improvements in public health, uh, climate change and a more sustainable future, and what's described as the deep learning revolution. After 9.30, we're going to be talking about uh, COVID with uh, pandemic uh, restrictions now lifted some time ago. What should we be doing about vaccinations? We'll be asking the experts. Let us know what you think on our Facebook page, uh, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 so let's turn first to that forum at HKU. The speakers were, in order, a clinician and scientist, Professor Dame Carol Black, who's an expert in treatment of the medical condition scleroderma, Professor Stephen Chu, a Nobel laureate in physics and former US Secretary of Energy, Dr Jack Dangermond, a leader in the development of geographic information systems, and John Hennessy, a computer architecture pioneer and chairman of Alphabet, the parent company of Google and former president of Stanford University. I'm very happy to say we have uh, joining us now on the line um, Dame Carol Black, who I mentioned is a clinician and scientist uh, specialising in the research and treatment of uh, scleroderma, and also so with us is Professor Yu Ning Rong, an Associate Vice President of GBA Development at Hong Kong U and uh, one of the uh, organisers uh, of the forum. Um, good morning to you both. Uh, perhaps uh, Dame Carol, if we could come to you first. Hello, thanks for joining us. Hello. So, um, uh, you're a government advisor to the, to the UK government. Uh, you've done a lot of studies uh, into the relationship between public health and benefits in, in productivity uh, to the economy and so on. Um, you stress the importance of uh, high quality evidence and evaluation uh, as a result of various studies that you've been involved in. Can you uh, just uh, give our listeners a, a bit more background about your work? Yes, thank you and, and, and good morning. Um, I mean, my work was uh, initially about looking at the health of the working age population in the United Kingdom. How healthy were we? Were we able to be in work and work well so we could drive productivity? And so my initial evidence to the government was showing them uh, where we weren't so healthy, if you like, the things that were standing in the way of people being in work and, and persistently in work and working well, and then making recommendations as to what government, working with employers, because employers are very important in this agenda, what they should do to make a difference. And I think it really important, I made the point yesterday, that when you're advising governments, you need to be able to present your facts clearly 
simply politicians are extremely busy, and to make an argument uh, that they can, if you like, understand and think to be reasonable and be prepared to come behind. And it may take a while. Not everything you recommend is put into place immediately. And of course, certainly in the system at home, um, our government would have the right, of course, to not want to do what you recommend. And you have to be prepared for that. Mm. But you must give honest, clear, scientifically evidence-based advice. Mm. Thank you very much, Dame. And I just wanted to follow up on, you know, given the recent uh, pandemic and this global pandemic that we've just experienced, to what extent do you think it's transformed the relationship between public health advisors and scientific advisors at large and the government? Do you see a change in relationship, a deepening of trust or a fraying of trust, if anything? Um, I would say overall a deepening of trust. Of course, not everything our um, chief medical officer, our senior um, scientific advisor, and our occupational health advisors. Um, Not all the advice they gave to government uh, went into practice, but most of it did. And they became to rely more and more on the work of those scientists, along with the committees that that were formed. Um, But in the end, Of course, the decision as to what to do is made at a political level. But I would say at the moment the relationship between our senior scientific advisors and government is good and certainly respected. You know, there there were areas where they disagreed, but that you would expect. Thank you very much. And I just want to bring in Professor Liu here, actually. So, Professor Liu, I'm following on from uh, Dame Carroll's point just then about trust and more generally speaking, the role of science, you know, in shaping public policies. Now, as an educator, you know, you're amongst a core organising member of this current forum. What what motivated you and uh, the, the president at large of HKU, presumably, to launch this inaugural series uh, of, of dialogues? Uh, this is a great question. Indeed, back uh, to last year, even before Hong Kong um, was even not opened up yet, we were thinking the day would come, so we have to do something at Hong Kong U. So with Hong Kong opening up, we think Hong Kong U as the important part of this great city must help revive the city's career past and make it even greater at this important crossroad. As you know, Hong Kong once was, and still is, one of the most important global training centers, as well as one of the key financial hubs in the world. We must also become the innovation hub and the cultural hub in Asia. Let's, we, are, we are thinking Hong Kong U should not be shy away from its responsibility to take a lead, even drive the changes. From yesterday's event, we can see very clearly that the forum can serve as a platform to discuss and uh, deliberate on critical issues of the world today. And the forum also can help strengthen Hong Kong's tie with other nations and promote its standing as a leading center for academic, excellency, innovation, and intellectual exchange. As President Zhang said, the forum 
with the presence of a distinguished scholar from different fields should become a regular platform that offer diversified insight, ignite, ignite discussion, and uh, integrate new ideas uh, for Hong Kong. Mm. So that's why we want to have this platform. So this is the first time, uh, more to come. Yeah, as you say, uh, the, the inaugural President's Forum, uh, more to come. How frequent do you think they're likely to be in the future? We are planning uh, at least uh, twice a year, even more, depending on the uh, heavy weight we can invite. Uh, in particular, we think about inviting uh, people outside Hong Kong, not just in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. But the topic could be uh, the... Uh, could cover wide issues, including issues people in Hong Kong really concerned about, how we can track global talents to build uh, this city uh, in a different way and can move forward, and how we can build the uh, innovative city uh, for our future. So with all the topics, uh, we probably uh, think about maybe two or three times per year. Thank you very much, Professor. And just to uh, bring in um, Dame Carol here. So um, you mentioned yesterday at the forum, actually, that the first time you set foot upon Hong Kong was around, um, I believe, 60 years ago. So uh, lots has changed since then. Uh, What do you make of Hong Kong today? And what's your first impression upon landing? Oh, well, I was so happy to be back. And the reason are the people. I think what is so crucially important in the world is is relationships, individuals, your friendships, your colleagues. And for me, um, my friendships in Hong Kong have grown up um, mainly through healthcare, through medicine, through working um, with the College of Physicians, the Academy, and then through um, interactions with your Department of Health, Um, And then through meeting other people when I've talked to some of your businesses, particularly, for example, about mental health in the workplace, Um, it's an exciting place for me, uh, huge potential, and I cannot tell you how happy after four years, it's four years since I've been here, I am to be back and to be able to resume those conversations in, in person. Um, I spent a wonderful afternoon yesterday with the Faculty of Social Science in the university um, discussing many of the issues of ageing and your ageing population Mm. and and public health issues. So, um, of course, it's physically different from when I first came, um, uh, but uh, it's really people that matter. Yes, uh, uh, interesting that you mentioned uh, ageing because um, I know that uh, you've been involved in, uh, uh, in, in fact, you, you were on a committee called uh, what, the What Works Centre um, for Ageing Better? I chair the board of right. the government's What Works Centre for yes. Ageing Better. For Ageing Better, yes, yes, yes. Um, any any uh, lessons, any advice that you, you were able to give? Uh, to the government about uh, how to deal with an ageing population? Anything about uh, the re- re- retirement ages and so on? <laughs> well, of course, as you know, at, at home we have a retirement age of, uh, of 67, as the general retirement age. Mm. I think you really one should look at it on how do you enable individuals to stay physically and mentally well as they go through life? Can you um, 
introduce sort of good habits that enable them to stay well and healthy, and that includes being physically active, such that when they get to the age of retirement, and countries vary in when they um, encourage retirement or uh, say this is the retirement age, but that for people who want to contribute after they retire, I think it's really important to have a variety of volunteering opportunities and also paid work because one of the real problems of getting older if you don't have social connections is loneliness. Loneliness mm. leads to depression. Mm. And I think in many countries during COVID, when older people were isolated, we saw an increase in suicide rates. Mm. So I think it's, it's we in, in the center that I chair at home, our aim is to give people the assets as they grow older to have a good older life and to be able to participate in society. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, um, ageing societies are something that uh, most uh, developed economies are facing. I mean, yes, are, 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 there, are there lessons that we can learn from each other? Oh, yes. Mm. I mean, because our, our challenges are very much the same. And I think it is also important, and I think you're addressing it here, um, I think there are some projects in the university, sort of intergenerational activities, because it is very important... Um, that you don't isolate either the young or the old, but that you encourage intergenerational working, intergenerational activities and mentoring. Um, and so I think that's one very good example where uh, we can learn from each other. I think we can also learn from any interventions in our local communities um, that, that show that doing certain things enables older people to live better lives. I mean, we have a lot of concern at home um, about the housing that older people live in because many of the apartments and houses are not equipped for older people, so they easily trip, they fall, they break their, uh, their legs, and, and that ends up in people going in hospital and having to have surgery. So it, it is all about the, the housing, the transport, the health. It's a whole combination of things which people are starting to think about. And we should share internationally what we find. And thank you so much, um, Dame Karen. Speaking of community building, I just want to bring in Professor Liu here because, you know, one thing I've noticed about HKU is that HKU has a very robust and flourishing alumni community and a community that straddles a multitude of generations, including folks who are incredibly steeped in experience and veterans in their field. So on that front, uh, would there be plans to engage the alumni community at large for this dialogue series or more generally speaking, what can we look forward to with respect to uh, the alumni engagement efforts of HKU? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And uh, as we all know, Hong Kong U is one of the leading institutions of higher education in Asia, and known for its excellency in academic and research. We also have the uh, large number of alumni uh, spreading over not just in Hong Kong society, also uh, around the world. Therefore, definitely the um, uh, alumni uh, community is the essay to Hong Kong U, also to Hong Kong. 
uh, <coughs> just now we uh, discussed all of the issues, including uh, aging issue. Yesterday we talked about the climate change, talk about deep learning. All this, Hong Kong should not be observer to all these global challenges. And Hong Kong included, we should be an active participant in global solution. Therefore, uh, to build a closer relation with our alumni, to have their input, to have that wisdom, I think it's very important for Hong Kong U and Hong Kong. I must say that uh, Hong Kong is always famous for the can-do can attitude. So we are always proud of this lion rock spirit. Uh, therefore, risk-taking and innovation uh, at this stage must go hand-in-hand hand for Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong's success has always depended on its ability in breast change. Therefore, we hope our alumni together with uh, Hong Kong U and Hong Kong, we can make difference for this city. Thank you, Professor Liu. Although, um, you know, allow me to, to just uh, raise a doubt or a question that many have, which is that, you know, these increasingly fractious and acrimonious times internationally, you know, geopolitics has reared its head, You've got political and ideological tensions and clashes, and many are asking questions concerning, you know, whether or not Hong Kong can weather the storm of these, these tensions that we're seeing, you know, and attempts to politicize our status. So I guess the question I have is, to what extent can we keep academic exchange unfettered, open, and ultimately immune from the politicization of our times and the zeitgeist at large? Uh, again, this is a great question. Uh, we all know that now we are facing a totally different world uh, than the, uh, before the COVID-19. Uh, Therefore, uh, we need to be cautious. However, having said that, I think to promote closer academic exchange and communication, I think is a key for Hong Kong and for Hong Kong you to survive and survive better. Therefore, we must do better. And we must to build closer relations with all the universities around the world. We should learn from each other. Therefore, yesterday event actually is the best example. We will continue to do so. Uh, Therefore, I'm hoping that the uh, non-academics will accept our invitation and come to this uh, city. Uh, despite all these uh, uh, geographic tensions, I am strongly confident that the um, academic community understands the uh, further communication and uh, exchange and cooperation is key to our success to deal with all the unpleasant crises we're facing, facing, no matter from disease to climate change to uh, all the issues we, we face today. Uh, yeah, let's ask uh, Dame Carroll about that. I mean, how is it important is it to maintain these uh, academic exchanges or, you know, increase them uh, given the geopolitical tensions that we face? Well, it's crucial. And if you think about it and you go back through history, and you look at all the tensions, um, the political tensions that have happened in the world, I think if you look at that, you will always observe that academics have managed to communicate, to collaborate with each other, and to do that despite the political tensions. They try very hard to share their work 
to work together, if you like, for societal benefit. And, and I've observed that over my life through many crises, that you will, you will see this happening, this real desire to communicate across all kinds of, of barriers and to support each other, and, and, and irrespective of, of, of whatever politics is going on, crucial that we maintain that and that the academic communities do support each other. And, and just to say, I think, again, whatever system you are in, and so for me in the United Kingdom, whether I am advising a conservative government or a Labour government, my job is to be as evidence-based and honest as I can and to give the politicians choice. But they need to know they can go with confidence to their academic institutions and receive um, evidence-based advice on which they can make decisions. But I, have, I don't really fear for relationships between and international universities. I think they've always managed to do it somehow, despite great political upheaval. Thank you, Dame Carroll. And you know, yesterday, right, there was a there was a whole new discussion concerning artificial intelligence uh, on the forum, uh, and that was a, certainly a core topic of contention and heated discussion at times. I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on the implications of the advent of AI and the rise of AI on your field of practice and on healthcare in general? Well, you can see um, enormous potential. Um, benefits both uh, in, in healthcare and in my practice, but can I just give you yet a different example of where um, AI has been very important to me. I chair the board of our national library, and in our national library we house the Alan Turing Institute, which is um, all about AI, and we have been able to work with the Alan Turing Institute using machine learning to go into our archives. So if I'll give you a practical example. We were able, using these uh, machine learning, to go into our huge um, newspaper collection and to extract, through the benefit of AI, um, data that we could never have gone back 100 and 200 years and extracted if we'd been relying on human beings to do it. Um, that's a very practical example, not in healthcare, but elsewhere, of the value of AI. I think what we all said yesterday, and of course John Hennessy was our great expert, mm -hmm. is that it, it is valuable, but, but we have to remember that at the moment, the thinking, the ideas at the moment are coming from human beings. That, that human interaction and intercourse is still crucial. And I, if I understood John correctly, he seemed to think that was likely to be so for quite some time to come. Mm -hmm. That will be yes. That that was uh, John Hennessy, the uh, chairman of Alphabet, uh, Google's parent company. Um, uh, Professor Liu, for you, what what was the uh, what was the most important uh, outcome of uh, yesterday's forum? I think the uh, most important outcome yesterday is 
we have opportunity to listen to these four um, very uh, heavyweight speakers, and uh, we just mentioned talk about the uh, machine learning. Definitely, Professor John Hennessy mm. uh, draw attention from the audience. He clearly explained how the machine learning we have the disruptive societal impact than any innovation before. And as an educator, we must teach students the critical thinking. And indeed, Professor Chu also mentioned that. And in his presentation, he talked about how technological breakthrough can provide solutions to our problem, particularly climate change. And Professor Black here, we talked about her topic a lot. What we impressed so much is the scientists really can play a very, very important role in changing government policy, advising uh, the policy, and, and uh, therefore, I think yesterday we have long learned so much uh, from here. And we hope this uh, forum will be a uh, prestigious event, can bring together not only renowned scholars in the future, we also can bring in eminent policy makers, thought leaders from around the world to engage more uh, stimulating, stimulating discussion. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to the next one. Uh, uh, thank you for joining us uh, on the program this morning. That was uh, Professor Liu Ningrong, uh, Associate Vice President of GBA Development at the University of Hong Kong and one of the organisers of the Academic Forum. And thank you very much to Professor Dame Carol Black, uh, clinician and scientist uh, from the United Kingdom. Um, we're going to take a short break uh, for a news summary and a few announcements. Uh, a quick look at the weather, mainly cloudy with a few showers. Uh, the outlook, uh, humid in the next couple of days and warm during the day. Temperatures will fall slightly towards the weekend. Currently it's 23 degrees, humidity 94% and the strong monsoon signal is in effect. New summary with Todd Harding. A top epidemiologist says he's not too concerned about an expected rebound in COVID cases during the summer, as flu poses a bigger risk. Benjamin Cowling from the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health says people can make up their own minds about whether they want to get a COVID vaccine, although it's recommended for high-risk groups. Donald Trump has arrived in New York after travelling from his home in Florida. He's expected to spend the night at Trump Tower in Manhattan before appearing in court later. He'll face criminal charges linked to a payment made to buy the silence of a porn star just before the 2016 election. And the Russian authorities have released a video of the woman arrested in connection with the killing of the prominent Russian military blogger Vladlin Tatarsky. He was killed in an explosion at a cafe in St. Petersburg on Sunday. More than 30 people were wounded. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Travellers heading for the mainland during the holidays are reminded to avoid crossing the boundary at peak hours and should plan their journeys in advance. Please consider using rail services. Those using other public transport, such as shuttle buses or other cross-boundary coach services or local public transport services calling at the Hong Kong Zhuhai Macau Bridge Hong Kong Port, the Lok Ma Chau Spur Line or Shenzhen Bay Port are also reminded to avoid travelling at peak hours. Ketamine will damage your brain, causing addiction, hallucination, anxiety, depression and panic. It will also harm your bladder, leading to bladder contracture and incontinence that will make you go to the toilet often. 
If you are troubled by drug abuse problems, don't hesitate to call 186-186 or send a message via WhatsApp or WeChat to 9818-186 for help. Don't be KO'd by ketamine. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. And welcome back to Back Chats with Brian Wong and me, Jim Gould. And for the second half of this morning's programme, we're going to be turning our attention to COVID-19. Where are we with COVID-19? What's the situation now uh, uh, with the uh, main uh, anti-epidemic measures uh, having um, been um, given up on a number of weeks ago now? What should we be doing about vaccinations? Um, let's focus on that. We have uh, joining us on the line uh, Professor Benjamin Cowling, head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Hong Kong. Ben Cowling, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, uh, so we heard you uh, earlier on uh, Hong Kong Today. Thanks for coming back, by the way, on, on the radio and uh, also uh, in the news there um, talking about... Um, the possibility of a return of COVID uh, later in the year, but uh, but I think you were saying that um, uh, flu is something that we should be more concerned about at the moment. Well, right now that that's right, yes, because there's increasing numbers of flu infections in the community. Uh, the, the news just came yesterday that there's a teenager with cerebral palsy in, in in hospital. I think with severe influenza. There's been reports of a lot of admissions from in older people with inf- with influenza. So right now, I think influenza is, is, a, is a greater concern. But certainly through the rest of this year, there will, there will probably be multiple peaks in, in COVID infections. The number of hospitalizations, I, I think, is difficult to predict, but there will certainly be a lot of infections. Mm. Just on influenza, I mean, uh, usually around this time of the year, there was usually an outbreak, a, a peak, a, a number of fatalities. I mean, is there any indication whether this year might be any worse than previous years? No, that's difficult to say that uh, the strain so far is H1N1, which doesn't tend to have as much impact as H3N2, but we haven't had flu for the last three years. And that means that people who might have been infected in in the past three years with H1N1, for example, and now be immune today to the H1 that's circulating today, those infections didn't occur. So there's relatively more susceptibility today than there would, would ordinarily be, you could say. And so my colleagues and I do think there's a risk of, the flu season this year being a little bit larger, maybe 20, 30% larger, not, not enormously larger, but a bit larger. And, and that's certainly a concern because we, we know in previous years before the COVID pandemic, hospitals do struggle to cope with big flu seasons. And you remember in, in 2019, I think in 2018 as well, schools were closed in Hong Kong because the num- numbers of flu hospitalizations were, were so large. So is the reason that we haven't had flu for the past three years, is, is, is that because of the anti-COVID uh, restrictions? Yeah, it is. It's, it's the, the travel restrictions, which meant the flu wasn't, wasn't able to get into the community very easily. And then everyone was wearing masks. There was a lot of social distancing behaviours and, and a lot of concern about respiratory infections. And so flu wasn't able to circulate because of the COVID measures. Um, so that was good that we didn't have flu and we didn't have m- many other respiratory viruses. But obviously now we're, we're more susceptible to those infections because people haven't been having them for the last three years. 
I'd just like to bring in a book that uh, to which you contributed, actually. It was edited by Christine Lowe, titled How COVID-19 Took Over the World, uh, Professor. I was wondering, what would be the top-level highlights from your article and chapter in this uh, book series with some very preeminent authors, including yourself, actually? Well, but my part in that book is just a small chapter about vaccination. I think the book as a whole is a really interesting read, a lot of different perspectives. Uh, Christine Lowe makes the, the interesting point that when we look before the COVID pandemic at the preparedness index, like which countries are rated as having the best preparedness for pandemics, the countries at the top of that scale, Western countries, US, UK, European countries, and so on, they, all of them struggled a lot to deal with COVID. And then countries in Asia, particularly in the mainland China, Hong Kong and Singapore as well, uh, other locations in Asia, maybe hadn't been rated as well on that pandemic preparedness scale, but, but did very well in holding back COVID for, for a number of years. Now, for, for my part in that book is about vaccination. And uh, I, I think one of the remarkable things in the COVID pandemic is how quickly we were able to get vaccines. Within a year of the start of the pandemic, vaccines were being administered to people. And that was really the way out of the pandemic. Most countries around the world that were able to get large quantities of vaccines in a timely manner were able to use those vaccines so that they could stop using the costly and disruptive public health measures by about the summer of 2021. By the end of 2021, uh, a lot of countries had, had really stopped using lockdowns, social distancing measures, mask mandates and so on, because vaccines were there to protect particularly the vulnerable groups, particularly older people. Thank you. And I'm sure this is a question that many amongst our audience would like to find out. But essentially, in terms of the frequency and regularity of vaccination, um, going forward, do you, do you anticipate annual updates and rejabs to be necessary? Or how frequently should we be uh, opting for, you know, the sixth, seventh and eighth shots going forward? Or is it the case that once we've got five shots in, there's sufficient immunity, you know, let's let's not worry too much about getting additional jabs as we go? Well, I, I think for high-risk Individuals, individuals are at high risk of severe disease, so that's mainly the very old and frail people in our community, maybe people with serious medical conditions. For those groups at high risk of severe COVID, even after they've been vaccinated a number of times, uh, the current recommendation is they should get annual boosters. Now, we have to look at how that's going. Over time, maybe that will change to be more frequent. And in some groups, particularly with, with weaker immune systems, that might be more frequent. But in general, I think it's going to be a, a recommendation for annual boosters. And then that might be able to fit with the, the program for flu as well, because we give flu vaccines annually at the moment. And, and other countries in, in, in the West, I think, have landed on annual boosters for the high-risk groups. For other individuals in Hong Kong, for healthier people, for younger people, um, there's no recommendation at present for, for those people to receive booster doses. I think the government said... Vaccines can be available. People can get them if they want to. They'll need to pay for it, but they won't be recommended to get it. And that's different from flu, where in Hong Kong and, and around the world, there's a universal recommendation that, that everyone should get a flu vaccine every year. Now, of course, most people don't do that, but, but the recommendation's there. But for COVID, we don't even have a recommendation for, for adults uh, below the, a certain age. Uh, the recommendation for annual booster is only for the high-risk individuals. So, so why is that? I mean, have, have, we, have we reached a stage where uh, COVID doesn't pose a, a great threat to sort of younger, healthy individuals? Well, I, I think that that point was reached actually quite some time ago. Mm. 
Um, even in early 2020, it was clear that for younger adults and for adolescents and so on, uh, COVID was a minimal risk to their health. Uh, the, the real risk and, and the large number of hospitalizations that have occurred throughout the pandemic around the world have been in older people and people in poorer health, people with underlying medical conditions. So that's not new. That's, that's something that's been known from the beginning. But I think what we rec recognize now is that further boosters will reduce the, the risk of severe disease in, in younger people from a, a very low risk to an even lower risk. But it may not really be, be necessary to do that. And, and on that, um, you know, the elephant in the room is always long COVID, though. So I guess the question there is, to what extent, Professor, do you think, you know, A, boosters are necessary to prevent or even helpful in ameliorating the symptoms of long COVID? And more generally speaking, I guess, what should Hong Kong do about long COVID? Is this an issue? Are we overhyping it? Or is this, uh, you know, yeah, so, so what can we do? No, I, I, I really like to know what the level of long COVID is in Hong Kong. I know people in Hong Kong who've got long COVID and it's, it can be really debilitating. Uh, there's certainly cases of it, but I don't know the frequency. There was a study from Chinese U reporting a high level of long COVID, but I, I, I don't find that to be very plausible. Uh, I would have to look at how that study was done. But the other thing is not clear that annual boosters can prevent long COVID because long COVID is often triggered by infection and booster doses don't do a lot to stop infection. They mainly they're mainly there to reduce the chance of severe disease uh, from whatever level it's at before you get the booster to an even lower level. So I, I'm not sure that annual boosters would, would make a big difference in how much long COVID uh, we, we end up having in the coming years. Hopefully that's already going to be at a very low level of long COVID anyway, um, because we have immunity from previous infections and from all the vaccines that the people in Hong Kong have received. But I would say that's still a, a level of uncertainty. There's, there's an area of uncertainty about how much long COVID is occurring, uh, which groups it's occurring in, how we can better prevent, or how we can better treat it as well. Mm. Now, COVID is something that, uh, it, I guess, it's not going to go away, is it? It's just something that we have to live with from now on. Well, the, the virus is certainly not going to go away, but infections are milder and milder mm. as mm. the population builds up immunity. Uh, so none of us like getting a cold, none of us like getting the flu, none of us like getting COVID. But it's a fact of life that from, from now on, from time to time, we're all going to get respiratory infections. We're going to get coughs and colds. We're going to get flu at some point. We're going to get COVID at some point. We can do things to reduce the rate at which we get those. So we can wear masks if we want to. We can wash our hands more frequently. We can stay away from other people, particularly if other people around us have got, got respiratory infections. Uh, in our home, if, if someone in our family has got a respiratory infection, we can try and help them to isolate so they don't transmit to the other family members. But I, I think it is something that we have to figure out a way to live with or to, to, to manage rather than something that we, we try to completely stop and completely prevent because I don't think that's going to be possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, just looking at the latest stats, though, I mean, I, mean, uh, I think there have been uh, 144 COVID-related fatalities since the end of January. So, so it's still going on, isn't it? It's still, uh, it's still affecting vulnerable people. Yeah, and it could well turn out that in, in this calendar year 2023, there's more COVID deaths than flu deaths. We know on average there's um, between 500 and 1,000 flu deaths every year. This year there might be a bit more because, as we talked about, the level of immunity is a bit lower. 
Uh, obviously, not all flu deaths are laboratory confirmed. And for the COVID deaths, the ones you're talking about are the laboratory confirmed COVID deaths. So it's not always easy to make direct comparisons, but, but COVID still poses a, a health threat. But, but other viruses do as well. Other respiratory viruses do as well. There's people in hospital today in Hong Kong with other respiratory infections, not COVID, not flu, but, but other other respiratory infections that have caused pneumonia and so on. Okay, well, thanks very much uh, for speaking to us uh, on the programme this morning. That was uh, Professor Benjamin Cowling, Head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Hong Kong. In fact, we have a, a Hong Kong U theme running throughout uh, this morning's uh, programme as well, because uh, uh, in just a moment um, uh, we're going to be talking again uh, on this subject to... Um, Ivan Hung, a clinical professor and chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the at Hong Kong U's Faculty of Medicine. That's in just a moment. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hello, audience of RTHK. I'm Paul Chen, the financial secretary. This year marks the 95th anniversary of RTHK. I wish RTHK every success in starting a new chapter for public service broadcasting. 95 years of public service broadcasting. 95 Stay tuned with Hong Kong. So Ivan Hung, uh, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Um, can we ask you about the uh, vaccine situation? Um, because uh, um, I understand that um, uh, you're quite supportive of the government uh, decision to uh, to uh, stop, you know, just giving out free booster shots uh, from uh, later this month, and instead focusing on uh, the vulnerable groups. Um, so, um, yeah. So, tell us more about your thinking there. Well, I, I think the thought basically is is based on the evidence that uh, currently majority of the so-called healthy population uh, under the age of uh, you know, 60 years old, uh, uh, have already had at least, you know, majority have three doses of the COVID vaccine. Uh, around 85% of the population have had the COVID vaccination. And majority, in fact, probably up to 70, 80% of the population have already had the infection before. So uh, overall, there's a very high, so-called hybrid immunity, meaning vaccine plus infection um, immunity, uh, and, and that will be very much, uh, you know, adequate in terms of the uh, immunity in the healthy population. So, in other words, um, the evidence basically shows that if you are, if you had, had, you know, a very good hybrid immunity, then you probably would not need a, a further vaccination. At I, least at this stage. Uh, yeah, at this stage. I mean, how long will that hybrid immunity last and will it uh, weaken over time? Uh, overall, that the uh, immunity will weaken over a period of, you know, 12 months or so. Mm. Uh, the other thing, of course, it would depend on whether there are further uh, new variants or major changes uh, of the viruses uh, genetically over the, you know, uh, over the next um, year or so. So that would uh, probably change, of course, the vaccination policy. Uh, nevertheless, I think the focus should be on those who are high risk, uh, who are the about the age of 60. By that sure, of course, it's about 50 years old. Uh, and also those who have, you know, chronic illnesses, including especially those 
who are immunosuppressed uh, those who are post stem cell transplant, sort of organ transplant, uh, and um, you know uh, healthcare workers or pregnant women who are vulnerable to uh, you know developing severe uh, pneumonia or pneumonitis after the infection. Thank you. And Doctor, on the note of variants, because you brought it up, um, you know, in, throughout the pandemic, we've seen the evolution and emergence of uh, the alpha strain, the beta and the delta and Omicron and various uh, versions of Omicron. And you know, the question here, I suppose, is since Omicron, we've seen a, a relative pause, right, in the types and also varieties of variants that have emerged since. Does this have anything to do with the epidemiological trajectory or the nature of the pandemic, or is this just a, a, a fact of sheer luck, which means that it's bound to change or it could change, uh, pending the times we're in and also how lucky we are? Uh, it's very much, as you mentioned, it's the nature of the pandemic, because it, uh, as the virus evolved... Hello? Hello? So are more successful yes. than the previous strain. Right. Mm -hmm. And that could rely only on by uh, basically further mutation uh, that allows a better transmission. Uh, but overall, the virus itself is weaker uh, in terms of the virulence. And the other thing, of course, is that majority of the population have had the infection before together with vaccination. And they will further drive uh, to so-called protect uh, against the virus. So the virus in order to succeed, they have, they have only one way of mutating is to be more uh, contagious, it's more transmissible. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, weak, it's a weaker virus. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's basically by nature that it is more to be a, weak, uh, a mm -hmm. weaker strain. And, and you can see that majority of the new subvariants are within Omicron, the BA2 and the BA5 subvariants. Uh, and, um, and that is likely that it's going to uh, continue in this way at least for the next few years. Mm. Uh, we were speaking a little earlier to your Hong Kong U colleague, uh, Benjamin Cowling, who pointed out that um, there's a recommendation that everybody should get a flu jab every year, uh, although most people don't. Uh, but there's not even any recommendation that anybody should get a COVID jab. I mean, do, do you think we might find ourselves in a situation where, uh, you know, people don't bother to get boosters because, um, because the, the, the perceived threat is not great enough? I think it's, it's probably slightly different between the virus, the, the COVID virus, <clears throat> COVID-19, and also the influenza virus. Mm -hmm. Is that the uh, within the influenza, so-called, um, you know, uh, uh, every year the, the the winter surge, the the influenza influenza itself basically had four viruses. There are two influenza A and two influenza B viruses. So, and the mutation happening within the influenza the changes. Uh, so-called antigenic drift every year is much greater compared to the COVID-19 virus. So, um, in other words, the, uh, that's why you need a annual influenza vaccination. Uh, for the COVID-19 virus, we do not know yet, basically. Uh, but currently, because of the, the latest uh, so-called, you know, or everyone has like two or three doses of the vaccine together with a you know, um, majority of population have had the infection. As a result, the hybrid immunity is much higher. It's far more higher than influenza, the immunity against influenza virus. Uh, as a result, so the recommendation is that within the, you know, the, the coming year or so, uh, the vaccination booster will be just focused on those high risks. Of course, we do not know 
you know, maybe next year we might need, a, everyone might need a booster, or maybe towards the end of the year or the turn of the year, we might need a booster for, for COVID-19 as well. But that will depend on the, the changes, the further changes of the virus. In, in terms of age, can you just remind us uh, uh, at what age is somebody regarded as, uh, as high risk? When does it start? Is it, is it 50? Um, well, according to the WHO guideline, it's 50 yeah. years old. They actually yeah. have a range, 50 to 60 years old. Uh, and I think for Hong Kong, probably 60 years 60. old is much more right. applicable. But the uh, scientific committee has drawn a line at 50 years old. So, mm. uh, so that to so you can say 50 years old. So that, so that means anybody 50 or over can still get a free COVID uh, booster if they want one? Uh, indeed, yes. Mm. Mm. That, that's right, helpful. And uh, just want to <clears throat> sort of uh, shift onto a slightly different uh, tack here. Essentially, uh, earlier on today, we heard from uh, Professor Carol Black, who talked about the challenges and also the implications of advising the government. And now, uh, Dr. Hung, you are amongst the most vocal and prominent uh, public health intellectuals, if I may call you that, uh, advising the government amongst other entities at large with your advice. So what do you see as the major challenges and also opportunities in relation to that experience? And do you find it rewarding and fruitful for you? Yeah, I think um, we have a very uh, important and um, so-called um, influential, uh, influential uh, impact from the SARS 2003. And based on that, we have, uh, you know, recommendation of the, you know, uh, negative pressure facilities in most of the hospital clusters. Uh, and also we uh, have developed a very uh, extensive and very comprehensive research in targeting against the coronaviruses and influenza viruses over the last 20 years. Uh, and that important change in terms of the setting up of the center of health protection together with the negative pressure facilities actually prepare us for the COVID-19. Uh, and hence, we did actually very well in terms of the protection against the healthcare workers uh, and the development of antiviral and vaccine in Hong Kong uh, against the COVID-19. Uh, and for this experience, uh, in the last two, three years, again, uh, I think we, it's very important that we should at least have a um, infection control, infection disease center uh, in each of the major clusters in, in Hong Kong, meaning that in Hong Kong Island, Kowloon, and New Territories, we need a infection uh, center, not just in Princess Margaret Hospital right now, uh, so that when we face with the next wave of pandemic, uh, patients can be admitted or hospitalized uh, very quickly without the problem of waiting for beds, like what happened in the fifth wave last year, especially among the elderly. Uh, and we need not just the, the beds, but also uh, you know, the manpower in terms of the training of uh, infectious disease doctors, microbiolog clinical microbiologists, uh, and also nurses, infectious disease nurses. Uh, that will help to tackle the next wave. Uh, and together with it, within the infection control centers or infection center, we also need a laboratory uh, that will help us to develop further research uh, in terms of the uh, diagnostic, in terms of antiviral therapy, uh, and also vaccine. So it's something that we should be uh, preparing ourselves for the next you know, pandemic, probably happen you know, maybe 
10 years down the road, but, but it's something that we need to start preparing right now. One of the core questions that arose in the early stages of the pandemic was whether or not there were enough negative pressure rooms uh, in a lot of these hospitals that you talked about, uh, doctor. And I was wondering if you could just break down for the audience here, what's the distribution like in terms of negative pressure uh, wards? And are, you, are they sufficient or do we need more, going back to your point concerning infectious diseases units and having one in each hospital? I think right now, if you, um, with each of the clusters, we have uh, ranging from uh, maybe 30, 40 to up to about, you know, uh, maybe 100. Uh, that's, you, if you take a, away the Princess Margaret Hospital, around, you know, maybe three, 400 uh, patients, if needed, but the rest of uh, hospital, individual hospital could basically hospitalize around uh, 20 or up to uh, patients, both adults and pediatrics, uh, including both adults and pediatrics. And that could tackle, of course, handle a so-called, at the early phase uh, of, the, of the pandemic. But when you face with a major outbreak like what we had uh, on the fifth wave uh, of the Omicron outbreak last year, uh, especially with a lot of many elderly patients coming in, then uh, uh, negative pressure facilities will not be able to tackle uh, you know, a large number of patients. Mm. So that's why we need a larger number of negative pressure. Mm. That could be, of course, not just a single room or, you know, for one or two patients per room. You can actually have a, you know, a, a cohorting or, or large general medical uh, isolation mm. facilities, but mm. within the, the, you could cohort the patient. Mm. And that will, of course, save some space as well. Okay. So uh, that's and, and as a result, why we need in each hospital or hospital, like Hong Kong Island or Carson or New Territories, we need uh, a large number of beds. Uh, that, of course, in in the normal period, uh, you know, non-epidemic uh, or pandemic period, use it as a medical, general medical bed, especially for the, uh, the elderly patients. Okay. Yeah, I've got to apologise for a, a slightly poor uh, a connection on the line, but uh, we've just got about a minute left. Uh, um, Dr. Hunk, can we expect um, any more like a surge in COVID cases later this year? Uh, un unlikely. Well, mm. there will maybe a small blip over mm. the, the summer, as I said, mm. because of the drop in antibodies. Uh, mm. Since we had the, from the last wave, it was probably uh, in Hong Kong mainland around six months ago. Uh, so we might have a small blip or, uh, in, in June and July. But otherwise, uh, I think that is a major surge because in general we have a continuous virus and we have enough so-called hyper immunity uh, within the community. Great. Okay. Well, thanks very much uh, for speaking to us uh, on the program this morning. That was uh, Dr. Ivan Hung, clinical professor and chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at uh, Hong Kong U's uh, Faculty of Medicine. Uh, thanks to our listeners and thanks to uh, this morning's uh, guest presenter, Brian Wong. And thank you also to our producers, uh, Hayley Yip and Christy Lai. Um, stay with us because we've got uh, news summary coming up followed by the brunch.